Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Kristen Turner, a host on New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Nina Sun Eichheim to talk about her new book, The Race of Sound, Listening, Timbre, and Vocality in African-American Music from Duke University Press. In 2018, Nicole R. Holliday and Daniel Villareal published the results of a study they conducted asking people to rank how Black President Obama sounded when given four different examples of his speech. Eidsheim's book explains the values and judgments such a question assumes. Through examples ranging from Black opera singers in the 19th century to users' responses to the vocal synthesis technology called Vocaloid, Eichheim sheds light on the ways that listeners invest racial and gendered meanings in vocal timbre. She takes on the consequences of essentialized understandings of race, gender, age, and ethnicity that underline cultural constructions of identity and reveals the central role vocal timbre plays in reinforcing those ideas. Thank you for taking time to talk to me today, Dr. Eichheim. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to talk with you. Well, this is a really interesting book, quite dense, but um, I think a, a very cogent explanation of of the myriad number of sort of assumptions and sort of covert values people have as they listen to vocal timbre. And I wanted wanted to start this interview just asking you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to the subject of this book. Yes, as I think many find, uh, there is some kind of personal story to what uh, I study. Uh, I'm um, a Norwegian national, but I was adopted from Korea at the age of two. And um, at that time, Norway was very uh, homogeneous. It still is compared to the United States, but not like at that time. Um, there was no Korean community at all. So if you looked like I did, it was just assumed that you were adopted. It was not assumed that you were part of any other kind of cultural um, heritage. So my experience of being a a person of color is very different, I think, than if I were to have grown up in the United States. Um, So my experience of voice in Norway, um, I didn't really think about it, actually. And um, I remember training as a classical singer, American teachers um, coming to Norway. And within that context, they, they talked about my voice is sounding very Nordic. And, um, and I, I knew of the Nordic school of classical singing, and, uh, and that's what I heard too. But all these things really changed when I moved to the States to do a master's degree in vocal performance suddenly being on the west coast you know by the pacific uh, with a large uh, asian community people really heard me very differently nothing had changed in my vocal production but um people heard me as asian and i i have never spoken an asian language um, i was too young to really be speaking when i moved to that or was adopted to norway so this was very confusing in the beginning and i um I noticed that I started to talk a lot more about my Norwegian heritage. I had never really thought about that before, but I felt like I really needed to mark that very important part of me. It's really my entire uh, person is Norwegian. Um, And what I started to understand then was that people didn't hear very much with their ears. They heard with their eyes and they heard with the context they brought to what they saw uh, when they saw me. Um, and this was very noticeable, for instance, if people first met me, quote unquote, over phone and, um, and then versus if they met me, uh, seeing me, um, in the first instance, they would maybe ask if I was of European origin, they, many would imagine I was French and, uh, but if they saw me, they would immediately think, um, that my accent was some kind of Asian accent. So all this, again, just felt like very personal first as a kind of personal struggle 
or confusion. And uh, my my first work, actually academic work, was on voice and um, electronic processing of voice. So I was just interested in exploring vocal sounds and vocal timbres as from an artistic point of view and a kind of technological point of view and from uh, thinking about the extension of the body. But uh, more and more, this question around why people hear the same sound in different ways became sort of larger for me in an academic realm. And also um, the question of why even I could hear kind of vocal timbral categories. Um, so it's as much, not, not as much um, unhappiness with the way that people heard me, but as much an investigation of how I also heard others. Um, so that launched this whole 20-year, <laughs> at this point, journey of trying to understand vocal timbre and how that's interlaced with perceptions and values or, um, and power relations when it comes to race, gender, ethnicity, nationality, class. Really anything that we care about as a society can be lodged in the voice. Well, I think that uh, one of the central insights that you have in this is um, this idea that vocal timbre is so powerful in the way that we construct ideas about all these different kinds of identity. And um, I mean, people talk about that a lot, but I think what you've done that's so powerful is to really break down what's happening when we say that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, one of the things that you do is you talk you you begin the book sort of positing a lot of questions and you talk um particularly about um the acousmatic question um as something that listeners are sort of um evoking when they listen to and try to make sense of sounds they hear and i, I would like you to talk first of all just you know what is that acousmatic question and why do you bring that concept in uh, right from the start yeah that's um so the enigma to me, what, um, I like <laughs> questions or enigmas or uh, um, kind of moments that one can meditate on. And that uh, term acousmatic um, typically or up to this point has really meant when we hear something and we don't see the source of it, we don't know what the source is uh, from vision or from some other way of knowing. And then the question for many electroacoustic composters has been, can we hear in a, such a way that we divorce the sound from its source, or do we always try to trace the sound to its source? Let's say if we hear the sound of water, will we always think water, or will we just think about the the texture or the, the sound <laughs> of that sound? Um, so that's how that term has been used up to now, and very much in, in film theory, etc., where you can... Um, juxtapose or or kind of collage one image with another sound that maybe don't have this uh, belong together originally. But what I came to notice was that the irony is that we actually flex that muscle even when we see the sound source right in front of us. So even if we were to speak, have a conversation face to face, um, I'm, I hear your voice and I'm Somehow it's going to rise in me all the time. Who is this? Um, is she honest now? Is she truthful? Is she speaking with a voice that sounds like herself? Um, is she well? Is she happy? Is she um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we start with more loaded questions. Um, is she sounds, I can maybe, the question can be stated in the form of an assessment. She sounds very feminine. She sounds very masculine, um, or maybe the voice is such that I don't pay attention to the gender. Maybe I can say she sounds very, um, she sounds educated. <laughs> and um, there is no time, I believe, that we uh, hear a voice and we don't make that kind of assessment. So, again, even when we see the source of the sound, um, like I, I would be one example of this. It didn't really matter very much who I was. The person who heard me would hear me with their context, would make the judgment with their context. In Norway, 
again, growing up so homogenous in such a homogenous society where people sort of knew already that I had grown up in a Norwegian family and would eat the same food and have the same customs. There was never a question of my, my heritage. Uh, and here, there's always a question of my heritage because the way that people come to somebody looking Asian like myself is very, very different. Um, so, you know, this kind of comes to actually a quite large point that I try to make in the book, which is that you no know, matter how we present vocally, um, it's really the person who listens to us, who hears us, that is going to define what that voice is. So we can make any number of sounds, but uh, it's always somehow in the receiver that that sound is going to be defined and named and known. And sometimes there's no connection or correlation between the two, what they're, between the vocalizer and the listener. So I kind of um, uh, turn, <laughs> turn the definition of voice around and say the voice is not in the vocalizer, it's really in the listener. Well, I think that's one of your most powerful um, assertions, this idea that, um, you know, we always think of the voice as being the product of of the singer or the speaker or whatever. And you really are talking about um, listening practices as one way to think about it. In fact, you talk about, um, you know, listening to the listening, like, you know, what what are we hearing, which I thought was a, was a really... Um, uh, really interesting way to think about all of this. And one way you do this is you start off the book and sort of early on with these sort of corrective statements that you then return to at the end of the book. And I thought one way to talk about your book is to go through each one of those statements. And I'd love to get sort of for you to explain what they mean so that our listeners can get a sense of these sort of really powerful insights that you are um, grappling with throughout the book. So one is voice is not innate. It is cultural. So what do you mean by that? Yes. <clears throat> so the, the myth and the, the fantasy and the story about voice, it's, you know, on the one hand, it's very beautiful and, and positive. <laughs> I hear you. I hear your voice. I hear what you're, I hear you. I see you. I'm in your presence. And very often voices um, stand in for that. Um but if we believe voice to be innate, to be essential, to be a, be your essence, which is in a, in a way what those statements actually do, then um, whatever whatever I hear your voice as being, I would then overlay to be your essence. Um, so then, voice is not innate; it's cultural. It's only heard. It can only be um, understood within the cultural context. So, for instance, um, in Australia, it's been uh, um, seen that or heard that female voices um, that have been featured on the radio has been going down in in um, pitch level. So, so that means that there's something uh, either of the selection of female voices, or probably most the way that um, more the way that women themselves understand themselves vocally and are allowed to present vocally that has done something with a kind of collective lowering of the pitch so it's not all these singular women who have decided to lower their pitch a little bit this is a sort of cultural collective um uh, <laughs> it's not really a movement but something that shift in understanding of of uh, femininity of being a woman um, and that has affected the vocal usage. Um, so it's not innate. Uh, the way we present vocally and the way we hear voc hear voices um, can only be... Um, any statement is really a, a contextual statement, a statement made from a, a broader context. Um, the second one is voice is not singular, it is collective. Yes, and these two, you know, I, 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 it, these three insights kind of come as, um, they came very, I've been thinking, like I said, about this for so long. And um, finally, one day, I just sat down and wrote these statements. They just kind of came out. And 
they, in a way, were able to decipher some of these things that had just been very confusing to me. And I hear myself talking, and I think I mixed up a little bit the first and the second statement because um, I started to talk about how voice is not singular, it's collective, um, already under the first statement, which is voice is not innate, it's cultural. So I think also what I wanted to, what I left out in the first statement or in the explanation of the first statement is that um, my vocal, my physical voice seems very much my own. It's inside my body. It's behind um, Adam's apple, which um, is very, very, um, uh, is a very tough cartilage. Um, I actually taught some uh, graduate seminars with uh, a faculty member from the medical school here, here at UCLA where I teach, and we were able to dissect a, a vocal <laughs> uh, apparatus, and I got to hold a whole, um, like, what do you think about this? The Adam's apple with the vocal cords inside. And it was so much heavier than I thought. And this was really extraordinary to me to hold it and to think about that the reason it's so heavy is because the voice is, um, or the vocal um, folds uh, and the vocal tract is extremely important for us. <laughs> that's how we breathe, right? So that specific point is shielded by the Adam's apple to um, withstand. Um, injury. So it seems very private. Uh, most of us have never seen it. Very recent technology allows us to see it, but most of us have not. But still, it's even though it's uh, internal in me, the way it actually has come to develop over my lifetime is not just me. That's cultural. Um, so what I was saying about um, female voices changing in Australia, for instance, um, talks about how somebody has, um, within the culture, shifted their own understanding of how one can present as a woman and then starting to use their voice in that manner. And that means then that the everyday usage of that voice has will then entrain that voice to become that uh, other presentation of uh, womanhood or femaleness or uh, femininity. Um, so that uh, vocal apparatus, that those vocal folds, which are tiny and again shielded, are actually formed by the cultural collective. Because what I do every day with my voice is the way I'm going to um, be shaped vocally. The example I always give is that we all have the potential to have quite large muscles, <laughs> to have explosive muscles. If we train like that every day and if we eat in that kind of manner, that will uh, draw out that potentiality of our material body. And we all have the potential to be endurance uh, athletes as well. And we, the body, the same materiality would then draw, be drawn out towards that potentiality. It would have lean muscles endurance muscles rather than explosive muscles. Um, so then we can see that. We can see if somebody works out with heavy weights and we can see if somebody runs long distances. We can just visually see that. Um, but we can sonorously hear what people do with their voices every day. So that's, I think, more what would explain that voice is not innate, it is cultural. So then the second statement, voice is not singular, it's collective, is, is this whole way of the, how we're taking everything in um, both in terms of the vocal usage and in terms of how we hear something. Whatever I hear, what um, it's not an original listening. I, I can only hear what I have been taught to hear, really. What I've been taught to hear is important. I, obviously, all of these must be interrelated as well. So, yes. I, of course, it's. I know it's difficult to kind of... Um, space these out a little bit, but I think they're so important um, to your book and also to just sort of this whole lot, your whole concepts here. So the last one is voices source is not the singer. It is the listener. Yes. So that we spoke a little bit about that earlier. Um, and just to break it down. Um, when I say the voices source is not the singer, it's the listener. The listener in that sentence is, you listening to me now, so somebody external from me, from my voice, <laughs> and it's me listening to myself as well. I am also the listener in that 
equation. We're always the listener to ourselves as well. So what that means is that what I said, uh, like what I said earlier, uh, I can do multiple things with my voice, but you're only going to hear it within your own comprehension of how to hear voices. So in that sense, the source of what you hear is yourself. It's going to be limited or expansive in the way that your own, the listeners, the external listeners' understanding and reading of the voice is. So you can think about that in terms of somebody like, let's say, an opera aficionado will hear um, details between opera singers that somebody who never listens to opera will not hear. They will just hear their operatic voices and somebody else would, will be able to name all these different vocal fachs, etc., and the nuances. So um, that, again, it's the listener who kind of determines what that voice is. And what that means for the, the auto-listening in that equation, the voice of source is not the singer, it's the listener. It means that I'm always not just vocalizing, speaking, but I am listening to myself and checking myself and really policing myself to see and, and assess whether or not I'm within the bounds that I want to be. Am I now, do I now sound smart? Do I now sound sane? Um, do, I not, do I now sound too formal, informal? Um, it, this um, uh, kind of policing is as strong from the vocalizer as from those who listen to one. So again, we talked about the way that voice is um, habituated by its daily use. So my own listening to myself and my own adjustment in relationship to how I hear myself and what I think about what I hear uh, is as much uh, what directs my daily usage of my voice and then again what it materially will become or be uh, because of that daily usage and training. I'm glad you brought up this sort of idea about policing the voice and, and you brought it up in the idea of you know the person who is speaking or singing is constantly sort of policing themselves. Is this the voice that I want to um, produce? Am I producing the voice that does it sound to me like I want to sound? Um, but of course, as you said, that is done in concert with all these cultural ideas that the listener is investing with that same sound, right? Am I hearing an opera voice? And am I, you know, if that listener is knows a lot about opera, am I hearing a Nordic voice or a French voice or, or whatever? Um, and so one, a couple of your chapters, I think, really dig into this idea of uh, that policing of the voice and how the ideas that you're talking about play into the way that uh, people's voices are heard and how that affects then, you know, the, those singers or, or those individuals. So one uh, way you talk about that is you interviewed a bunch of vocal teachers who teach classical music or operatic music. I think it was 13 of them. And one of the things that you talk about that I found quite fascinating is that these teachers, uh, all but two, made spontaneous um, uh, correlations between the ethnicity of the singer they were working with and the kind of vocal timbre they thought they should have to be, I guess, authentic to themselves or to to have the voice that they should have. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. And you know, where does that idea come from? Do you think? And and how how did the your informants talk to you about what it meant to have an Armenian voice or a Korean voice or or, or whatever it might be? Yeah, uh, this is fascinating because we. We know there are national schools of singing, which is uh, around the very <clears throat> around the language and around uh, composers who have um, the repertoire that has been composed within that language, and and maybe the national kind of composition styles as well. Um, so that we sort of know what those ingredients are. It's the kind of sound of a language, um, composition style, etc. Um, and in and some places, there are very, very strong um, control, actually, over that sound. But then, um, so there is a, actually not an ethnic or racial um, um, basis of that. It's these ingredients that I mentioned, language, which, you know, anybody can 
be of an have a, uh, any language as a native tongue. It just depends on whether or not they were given that uh, that native language, um, and then a certain kind of training within a certain school of, of music. Um, but then this uh, question of the ethnic or racial uh, timbre kind of is not the same. It's very important to say it's not the same. It can seem like it's similar or the same, but that uh, it crosses or it's like in a, in a cross purpose in a way with these national schools, because what, uh, what I hear this and the sense I really have had from being in this milieu for a very long time is that, um, a person's presentation and, and really, again, our understanding of, of their visual presentation um, is what determines this timbre and, and the teacher's uh, expectations of what their sound would be. So you could have a different people being trained in any of these schools, but still, or I looked specifically at the United States here, um, there was a sense that there was something else going on as well. Somebody might be trained in in the, in the United States. People think of it as the international school. <laughs> so it's not like the American school. Um, so people would have this sense of being that somebody is trained here within this general pedag- vocal pedagogy, American vocal pedagogy, but still um, having a particular kind of genre, uh, timbre that is tied uh, to their uh, race or ethnicity. And um, some teachers actually went as far as to to think that um, the teachers should really be very educated in terms of the sounds of different ethnicities. They thought that was um, what would help them as teachers and uh, develop a healthy voice for the student. So very often we see this I don't know if it's a disguise. I think it's just a mix-up and the way that people process this uh, internally, because we have been. We also understand there are certain things we are not to say about race at this point. But the language very often then is around healthy voice. So if somebody uh, presents as uh, non-white, then um, the teacher would consider it not healthy for that person to quote-unquote sound white. Um, and it's even more extraordinary when you think about that this is within the context of classical singing where everybody, so this is where it's very different from these national schools of singing, everybody is coming to this repertoire as second language speakers. And the repertoire that classical singers are for, first trained in are not English. It would be Italian, German, etc. So everybody's coming um, to it with uh, in terms of language they're coming more in the same way to this um, to this music to this repertoire and to this training so um, it's very it's hard to you know uh, it's hard to um, to say exactly how this has uh, has become such a strong idea but we can also go back to thinking about how if we believe that voice is essence, if I believe you are your voice, and then if a society believes in race, how can it not be that we do not sound our race or ethnicity? It, uh, if voice is tied to essence, and if we believe in racial essence, um, it seems like we should sound that essence. And then what happens is, again, like I was talking about earlier, Voice is so malleable, and um, anybody who has gone through this very, very careful, careful training, it's, it takes at least 10 years to become a, a trained uh, classical singer with weekly lessons, oftentimes two or three times a week with coaches. So you have somebody listening to you all the time and adjusting your voice, um, even within this very strict um, a regiment of training. Um, we. Uh, what I wanted to say was that within this strict regiment of training, uh, voices are adjusted. So you can say that in there have become these sub uh, um, sub timbral sounds that um, we 
might think about as tied to these races or ethnicities. But the point I really want to make with this book is that even if we hear such a sound, it doesn't say anything about that person's body. It says only that that person can make that sound and does make that sound very comfortably. But it also um, also says that that person could be trained in a slightly different in a slightly different direction or a hugely different direction to sound differently, still within the operatic um, idiom. So to go back to this analogy of training to be a um, bodybuilder or weight training versus um, a marathon runner, that's what happens, I think, in the vocal studio. These young students, these young voices are being trained into these uh, sonic racial categories. And then we hear them and then we say, look, there is, I can, I can hear it, there is a correlation. But this is where um, I think I used the phrase, uh, the evidence is planted. You know, we, if we believe in race, we train that sound into the voice and the voice starts to sound like that. And it's the training and um, the perception, the collective perception of that person that, that makes that happen, not that that is the essence of that person. Um, so it's very tricky, and this is why it's been so tricky to do this work, because uh, we can't just uh, listen to the voice and, and think that that's the sound of that person. That, that is the sound of the person, but that is just one sound of that person. <laughs> uh, so that's why I, I found these three statements that we talked about to be very helpful, that you know, voice is not innate, even if I hear you in this way, you have many other ways of vocalizing as well. Voice is not singular. You know, even if the voice seems to come from your internal um, body, um, that internal body has been sh shaped by the collective. And then the voice's source is not the singer, it's the listener. You, both you as a listener and myself as a listener, we have been adjusting con constantly to these forces that we're uh, bathing in, really. Well, I, you know, I think that um, the way that you explain that, it's, as you said, it's so difficult, but I think it also reveals what's at stake mm -hmm. when uh, people say things like, oh, this person's voice is not healthy. And what they mean is there's something about that vo person's vocal timbre does not um, conform to what I think someone who looks like that person or comes from this particular background should sound like. And, you know, how um, restrictive that becomes. And perhaps uh, your best example of that, of course, is the Black Opera Singer, which you have uh, talked about in other formats and other um, published work and have returned to here as well. And, uh, you know, I as I was reading it, I was thinking about how um, you, were, you were making the point that um, it's very hard for Black Opera Singers to sing outside of a very small number of roles. So there's a certain number of exoticized female roles that are traditionally cast with black singers, Carmen, Madame Butterfly, those, those roles. And then for men, it tends to uh, the lower male voices who tend to be villains in operas. Uh, black men have an easier time being um, cast in those lower voiced roles. It's very tough for a black tenor. Because tenor voices tend to be the heroic roles. Um, and, and I was thinking, you know, what is it about opera that has continued to be so resistant to um, what in another dramatic context like musical theater or, or just straight drama would call colorblind casting? So, um, you know, not that that is a huge phenomenon in those other forms, but they are definitely more open to it. And of course, with Hamilton, it really sort of blew open that whole conversation really sort of blew, blew open in musical theater uh, with the casting in those shows. And of course, opera is also the only genre that people still routinely back black up um, to play uh, certain roles. So, you know, what do you think it is about opera that um, in, in an inherently unrealistic genre where people are going around singing in a voice that is highly trained, as you said, takes 10 years at least to produce that vocal timbre. 
why can't, why is that um, construction of reality about race something that is so difficult for opera to deal with? I don't think I have a very straightforward answer to that, other than maybe that opera is understood as a white European musical genre, even though opera is not, you know, being written um, across the world, really, but it still is understood as that. It's in a very exclusive white environment, I would say. Think about the patrons. And it's very expensive to produce. So you have layers of patrons, layers of um, boards. <laughs> um, it's a very particular kind of power structure. I don't, you know, and you can think about that in terms of symphony orchestras as well. I mean, there are, any kind of classical music is pretty white. Why are, are some bodies allowed to make some sounds and others not or seen as outsiders to those sounds? Um, I don't don't know that much about musical theater and if it's been very very different there. But it strikes me that it's it, it, the origin is is different. Um, the repertoire might be uh, different in opera. There's you know there <laughs> the repertoire some of the repertoire is quite old and it's still being played, still being um, put on the stage and and there's a struggle with that too. If it was um, produced within or created within a very white European context. Um, how do we deal with that today? And I think those are excuses, right? Um, I don't have a good, ex- a good explanation other than that. It's a Western European music is still a very white dominated uh, musical genre. Well, I, well, of course that that's certainly true. I, I, I wonder if, I guess what as I was reading this book and mm-hmm. and really struck by your your insights it occurred to me just again how powerful that connection between vocal timbre and ideas of race are in opera in particular perhaps because of what you said because it is so old and so much of the repertoire is hundreds of years old and you have hundreds of years of tradition about how it has been performed in the past. Um, one of the things that you say is um, uh, vocal timbre is even a stronger indicator of race than skin color itself. And I wonder if that's one reason that opera is um, so resistant because um, it, by keeping the singers white, um, it keeps the genre, which is this much more amorphous idea, white as well. And that's what's at stake there. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. It's, it's a fascinating uh, question for certainly. Um, And in fact, a lot of your examples center in on um, what you talked about, what happens in your own life, which is the incongruity when someone produces a sound that the listener does not expect. And um, for me, you introduced me to a new singer that also has, uh, that also happens with, which is um, a man named Jimmy Scott, who is an African, mm-hmm. or was, I guess he is, he, I think he he's passed dead away now, some years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's an African American jazz singer who, um, because of a physical problem or condition, never went through puberty. And so he, um, uh, which affected his vocal timbre, of course. And um, despite having the same vocal range as quite a number of other male African-American singers, I, I when I went to listen to him, I absolutely heard what you meant about his vocal timbre sounds uh, feminine and he sounds like a woman. And you talk about some of the ways that 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 as the listener constructing his sound as gendered female had on his career. And I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and let our listeners know a bit about, um, about Jimmy Scott. Yeah, Jimmy Scott was an incredible jazz ballad singer. He has a, an incredible, he had an incredible uh, vocal timbre, very unique. Um, even before we started to talk about these issues, uh, he's, his phrasing is just um, wonderful and um, is a deep, deep, deep musician. Um, he was born with um, something called <clears throat> Kalman's uh, syndrome. It's a hormonal inherited illness or syndrome. 
And like you said, it doesn't um, allow the person to go into puberty. So in terms of his stature, he was um, maybe shorter than most men. Um, and uh, But he was very adamant um, all this time that he was a um, heterosexual black man. Uh, what happened... Uh, there are many twists and turns to his uh, career, but just very broadly what happened is that he um, he sang for different people, uh, different band <clears throat> leaders. And um, in the beginning, he was actually not uh, even named on the record or he was maybe mistaken for a woman. So um, he was, in a in essence, erased. Um, and uh, when you hear uh, people early on describing him, they would assign names or descriptors. Again, this is goes back to the voice of source. It's not the singer, it's the listener. They would say he was a fag, he was um, a woman, he was a child, he was a girl. And um, this is how they perceived of him. And um, what they said was the reason for hearing him in that way was that his voice was so high and that he sang in such high, <laughs> in such high range, higher range. And, um, and I, that was something I really, um, I just believed in for a very long time because I also just listened to it and it sounded kind of high, but I really started to question that as well. And uh, all through this time, he, was, uh, like I said, first, he wasn't um, uh, acknowledged on records or a woman's name was uh, put in his stead. And um, when he came out with the solo record, his um, image was not his own. It was a model's uh, and it was a woman's face. So he was replaced by a woman. And uh, on another album cover, it was, again, not him. It was a couple a man and a woman, and one could imagine he was either of them or maybe he was somebody just serenading them. But he was never allowed to present as who he insisted he was, a black heterosexual male, because he didn't fit into these categories that we imagine for black heterosexual males. So here the listener in the form of the producer or the audiences are really producing Jimmy Scott as um, again, a gender ambiguous or maybe a female person. So all through this time I was studying this and I, it really bugged me, <laughs> uh, this, uh, these statements about his voice being so high. And I thought, I'm just going to look, <laughs> I'm just going to transcribe this album and see what, where his tessitura lies. And I'm going to look at his contemporaries and see where they are vocal uh, in terms of vocal tessitura and the range they they record with and what it turned out to be and have a very i thought a lot about how to visualize this to make it very evident just by just having a very quick look at this chart <clears throat> what you can see then is that jimmy scott's voice is really kind of in the middle he uh, and that his contemporaries are singing much 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 higher than him sometimes an octave or more higher and so what it came down to, my reading of this, is that people, um, and this is how even expert listeners think they hear one thing, but they might actually be hearing something else. What people assigned to pitch was arguably timbre. So they thought because it sounded unfamiliar, it didn't sound to them very, um, they couldn't easily assign a black male voice to that sound. So they thought it was a woman and they think women sing higher. So they just said, the reason I think this is a woman is because this person sings in a woman's or female tessitura. And uh, again, he did not <laughs> sing in that. It was not out of the ordinary at all. And other males sang much higher. So what uh, the way I explain this is that Jimmy Scott has no breaks in his voice. He's what the, his contemporaries did when they sang much higher was, and then he did pitch wise was to switch very, uh, in a very stark way into falsetto. So I call this, uh, uh, um, timbral scare quotes. So I have a, then if I am one of these male <clears throat> contemporary singers, I can sing with my voice and I can sing much higher than it's expected of me as a male singer 
but I do it in a different timbre. So I can say, I am still my heteronormative, normative, uh, black male um, voice. <laughs> I present as that. And I also can use this other voice that is not me. I put scare quotes, timbral scare quotes around it. So I can play with that, but I can retain my core um, male heterosexuality, the presentation of that vocally. And again, Scott did not do that. And what's also fascinating is that um, a contemporary uh, countertenor uh, who sings within the context of the Black church talked about um, how he, because he, as Jimmy Scott, this is different because he sings in a much higher range than Jimmy Scott, but what he did, this countertenor did, was to, because he's singing in this high range and this timbre throughout the entire piece, he puts timbral square, square, scare quotes around the entire piece by speaking before he sings. So he speaks in a really deep masculine, uh, you know, in the way that we imagine that masculine sounding voice and sets up the piece in that kind of way. So he signals to the audience, this is me. I am a normative uh, black male. I am presenting as that here with my vocal presentation my vocal speaking performance. And now I sing and I put timbral scare quotes around the entire piece. It's not me. It's just something I am capable of doing. So there are all these way of kind of doing different vo vocal maneuvers, but signaling what we think is central to our identity and what we think is kind of play and differentiated from our core identity. Um, and, uh, yeah, Jimmy Scott was never, never able to really um, be heard in the way that he wanted to be heard. So he was understood as a woman, as a child, as a, um, as a gay person. Uh, and uh, none of this um, bothered him in a way, but it was, that it was not who he wanted to present as. It was not who he uh, sought to present as. In the very end, he also was used as the sound of death in Twin Peaks. So it's these non-human um, kind of associations with his voice because he, uh, he never, um, uh, he, he didn't use any temporal scare, scare, scare quotes around his voice. Um, that makes me think also, though you don't address this in the book, but I wondered, you know, how are, there's a few transgender opera singers now, and I want, you know, I thought of them and sort of uh, the complexity that they are also going to present um, listeners when you have, uh, for instance, um, there's a woman named Lucia Lucas who uh, sings in the bar in a baritone voice, although she has transitioned to be a woman. She's a trans woman, and how um, you know the, again that how dicey um, uh, the presentation of gender is going to be for these transgender singers, who uh, some of whom are transitioning to other voices, going from, uh, for instance, in in a Holden. Madigame's um, example, he, uh, she is, uh, or excuse me, he is moving from a mezzo to, and now sings in a tenor voice, and then Lucia, who is continuing to sing in a baritone voice. So um, that just is going to add a whole nother layer of complexity um, as the listener is trying to construct uh, the voice. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, in a funny way, I think when it's um, more overt like this, when the person is, um, it's known that they are um, navigating these issues, it's something we can look at and we can maybe deal with in some kind of way. <clears throat> um, but Jimmy Scott was was not trying to do something extraordinary. He was just trying to present as a heterosexual black man. And he was not allowed to by those who listened to him. So in in a way... Um, and it's a different time as well, right? But um, yeah, it, sometimes it's, it's, I don't know if it's easier, but sometimes it allows us, it, it gives some more, us more ways to talk about and process something when it's um, more, I don't know how to describe the difference between these cases, but more 
it's not the more extreme, but the more um, overt or more, um, what would be the word? Um, well, I mean, all I can think of is sort of constructed that uh, these singers are in the um, view of the audience constructing gender in a way that's very overt, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Overt, yeah, overt may be the word. Um, and Scott was not, actually. And it's hard. that's why it's harder to deal with him. Um, and I mean, the whole trance uh, and voice is extremely interesting. And a lot of my understanding and our understanding <clears throat> as a scholarly community around gender and voice comes from that, you know, those practices and that community, because um, then we really understand much about by studying these practices and, and um, yeah, by studying these practices, one understands more about how one signals um, how one yeah, signals gender. There is a trans chorus in Los Angeles, which um, is quite fascinating, and they are um, it's it's not it's um, not very straightforward, right? <laughs> if how one wants to present even after this after the transition, and it's it's a question that I think within that community is very highly debated. Uh, still, but the singers that you mentioned have—it seems like they have come to some kind of resolution in terms of the way they want to deal with their voice and their gender presentation. I think the the word we haven't introduced thus far in the conversation, but I think your whole book, in some ways, is about is this idea of authenticity um, and how people construct what they believe to be the authentic voice for the body that is um, uh, making that sound. And uh, you, uh, one of the great examples, I think, in in your book um, is this uh, Vocaloid technology where you've moved away entirely from an actual voice. This is an entirely synthetic process. And yet we still cannot, as listeners, get away from listening to what to, I went and listened to some of the uh, Vocaloid songs. I don't know exactly how to, to even describe it. And I found them to be mostly very, uh, I guess, artificial sounding. I could really hear the technology in it. But yet we still uh, are still describing this sound using the same old words. So can you talk a little bit about um, about this example that even gets us away from the body, but we still, as listeners, can't get away from these habits of listening. Yes. Yes, it just goes <clears throat> to show that we are always reproducing the values that we are that we hold in any kind of listening situation. We reproduce them. We try to hear the voice in the engine of a car, right? So, um, well, very specifically... Um, it's a kind of long story, but um, because there's been many different iterations of this uh, software and um, and I've been working on it in different phases because I thought the story was kind of closed. I thought that I knew what happened here. So the first kind of portion of that story was, uh, for me as a scholar, was um, I Start. I, I heard about this software. I went to study it. Um, I talked with the people who produced it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and what I found was that um, when when this company wanted to create these um, synthesized voices, they went. They they thought that what there would be a market for would be um, <laughs> voices that had some kind of race attached to them. So they created uh, these two black singers, um, Lola and Leon, and on the package, the, the software package, basically what you see is, is what I would call a blackface image. Um, so when they're uh, creating this um, synthesized voice, this technological tool, really, they still had to assign a race to it. They still thought they had to assign a race to it. Um, at the bottom of this synthesis is actually recordings of real voices of people's voices. So because they had, these are one of these kind of delicious mistakes that happen when, when we equate voice with race or the sound of voice with like visual race. They had, this uh, software was created in the UK and they had recorded, um, a British, the male singer was British and the um, female singer 
who gave created these voice banks is what um what they do they create all these they they record all these different phonemes on um different pitches and that's what's at the bottom of the synthesis so again they they have the british person and the, for for the male and the jamaican person who lived in and worked in the uk for the female um version and uh when they these two singers sang, I have I wasn't able. They wouldn't disclose who they were to me, but they would just tell me these anecdotes around this. But so when they sang, they would sing in let's say um, within the soul genre, and that's an American genre. And like uh, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, they would sing with an American accent, right? So when you sing this genre, you sing with the accent of the genre. So they would sound. Um, American and probably in the producer's mind they would sound African American um, but what happened when they were asked to record these phone names which are just Pa, Ma for instance um, this is my reading of it, I think what happened was that this is this was not in the context of some kind of genre that they would then enunciate within it, the sounds were stripped down to their basic phone names and I think they're um, the pronunciation that they were most native to, so um, British English and Jamaican English, would be the um, way they would pronounce those phonemes. And these are very, could be quite small differences, maybe not be that um, audible to just a regular ear. But within this synthesis, it was noticeable because what happened was that all these uh, users started to um, break down and make fun, really, of these voices in terms of this. They couldn't make so sense of the kind of accent of these voices. So here is this, again, this example of equating, mistaken, mistakenly equating a vocal um, timbral race with visual <laughs> race. Um, but when, so when you have this, what we heard then was British English and Jamaican English. We didn't hear American English, of course. So to me, at that time, I thought, look, um, we, we reproduce uh, the world as we see it, and we see the world racially. We really do. I mean, we can just look around us. Uh, and um, here, here this happened in this software. And here was this huge mistake because of these assumptions. But what happened then later on was actually that um, all these people started to use these voices in a way that they weren't originally intended, and they, they started to create new vocal load voices that were um, connected to anime figures. And so, so um, at that time, then I thought, oh, look how wonderful! They're completely detaching. These voices from these user groups are really detaching the voice from these racial categories. They're trying to kind of go into a fantasy space, um, which again can be very racial. But it seemed to be this period where uh, there was so much more play with it and discovery. But the whole the story where it ended for me was actually again a kind of reproduction of the final kind of voice I talk about is re again a reproduction of a, a racial category and this is a self-reproduction by a Latinx woman um, from the United States really insisting on that voice being um, understood as that so you can think about that both as reproducing racial values but you can also think about that as her wanting to and needing to and find it very useful and, and meaningful to reproduce um, her own identity as she herself sees it, uh, again, as a Latinx woman. So it's very, um, you, it, I think maybe in this software, we saw these changes much, much more quickly because you can uh, program and then train somebody within a year or uh, one of these softwares versus 10 years, like we talked about for some kind of um, training. So it was very interesting to follow this story as it was moving along. And uh, I got to talk with them and connect with this user community. And it's really like a very, very fascinating group of people. Uh, and they're very invested and they had um, yeah, so, so, so strong feelings around how their voices, these synthesized voices presented. 
Um, well, we are running out of time, I think, but um, I have a million other questions I could ask you, and I really encourage our listeners to uh, read this book because you've got so many you know, such great examples and case studies and, and so many great insights. But I'll um, end this interview just asking you, you know, you've this is a, a huge project. It's just come out. What are you uh, what are you working on now that this book is uh, off of your desk? <laughs> I'm working on many different things. <clears throat> One, um, let's see. Um, well, uh, I talked about my background as a singer and um, uh, spending all this time writing two books uh, quite um, close to one another, like really at the same time, um, didn't allow me for much time to sing. So I'm back to singing now, actually. And um, that's really very, very um, uh, interesting. And to me, I think I couldn't have written this book without having been a, a vocalist of some sort. Uh, I don't think one has to have had the same training as I, I do, but I think one has to really um, train the voice and see and hear the changes that can happen in order to think through voice in this particular kind of way. So to me, it's important to sort of return to that practice um, on a more deliberate, uh, in a more deliberate way than I had time to uh, for the last few years. Um, so the particular music I'm actually singing now is the music of a African-American composer called Vadada Leo Smith. He was part of the um, he's 77, now he's going to turn 78. So he came to Chicago from Mississippi, uh, where he grew up um, at the very end of the Great Migration and sort of last tale of people. And he was part of the AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, that group. And um, uh, from the 60s, worked very deliberately on develop his own notational uh, vocabulary, his own notational language. It's a symbolic language. Um, and I'm really fascinated by that uh, compositional um, project, really, I would call it. Um, it's a kind of philosophy uh, because um, what I've been very concerned with or trying to um, deconstruct is uh, the notion that we that sound that we can know sound, and the notion that that the sound in my first book, sensing sound, singing and listening as vibrational practice, one of the sort of key insights for me was um, something very simple, but that the notion that we can think that the sound is out of tune, for instance, or in a region and German German is false. The that no uh, sound is uh, not the sound. The word means false in English. If you sing out of tune, you sing false. So what does that imply? It implies that there's some kind of right, there's some kind of a priori thing that exists and we're in relationship, should be in some kind of correct relationship to that. Um, so that's in terms of sound or notes and pitches, but then that is reproduced as we were talking about today in terms of voices. So if I believe your essence to be something, you should be in adherence sonically, vocally to that. So this notational language that Wadada Leo Smith has developed is actually relational. So it's not fixed. It's very uh, rigorous and precise, but it's not fixed. So he has um, signs that, for example, means uh, different levels of velocity or different levels, let's say a short sound. But instead of this um, notation being attached to some kind of grid, which uh, Western musical notation is attached to some kind of grid in the background, <laughs> um, here... Um, a short sound, we only know what the short sound is if we know what the long sound is. And a long sound can vary from uh, one version of the piece to another version of the piece. Or we can maybe say that once we know what the short sound is, then we can also know what the long sound is. So everything is relational. So it actually, to me, it encapsulates his, what Adelio Smith's notational language and his philosophy encapsulates everything that I've been trying to say uh, in relationship to sound in my first book and now in relationship to voice and race in my second book, he has a way of thinking about music in a non-fixed manner that gets us to this place where um, where I if, I if I think of you, I hear you and I think this is a woman, I always, I also immediately have to think, why do I think this is a woman in relationship to what or 
I think this is a very feminine woman. I have to ask myself, why do I think this is a very feminine woman? Where does that come from? What's a less feminine woman? What's a masculine woman? And I have to grapple with my own assessment, my own being the person who creates the voice, my own. And then this is what we talked about a little bit earlier. You mentioned this phrase, listening to listening. I have to notice what I create through my listening, what I create through my being and my statements in the world. So it's a really interesting, for me, project, uh, being able to sing again. We have been recording, and he's going to come back here to UCLA, where I I work uh, in November. We're going to do a concert. We're doing a series of talks together. We call them creative dialogues. We're going to do a series of 12 dialogues. Um, this fall, we'll do one in at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles um, on November 7th, and then we're going to Harvard in... Um, April, I believe it is. So I'm very, very happy working on new work that also connects to this. That sounds really fascinating and um, like a a composer who I have not heard of, and I am going to have to run back to YouTube to see if I can hear some of that. Yes, yes, it's amazing. Yeah, I'm excited to to see how that project uh, spins out as as it as it develops. So um, thank you so much for being with me today. My name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network. And we've been talking to Dr. Nina Sun Eidsheim about the race of sound, listening, timbre, and vocality in African-American music. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you.